He was very um, friendly. She loves her husband. Everything is perfect. He seemed like just a normal dad. She was the sweetest, nicest, quiet voice, calm. They were very, very smart, bright boys, and they would take care of their little sister. He's not the person that we knew. He changed. Something happened. If Tony had gone through that trauma as a child, do you think that Megan and your grandkids would still be alive? Yes. Uh, he had to be traumatized, and it might explain why he did what he did, although it could never justify it. A guy came out of the room, showed me his badge, and he said, I'm from the FBI. We were all sort of in shock for a while. Now there's a lot of just deep anger to think that he would come out with this trying to, to blame it on her. From the day in New London, Connecticut, I'm Sten Spinella, and this is Looking for the Tote Family. And I'm telling you, when this is over, because it is going to trial in September, mm-hmm. uh, if you down here, I will be the first one to meet with you after I'm done. While our sources are spread throughout the eastern part of the United States, they were all doing one thing at the same time in April. They were watching Tony Tote's trial. I should say they were doing two things. They were all also hoping Tony would be found guilty, all except his father. Their disparate experiences with the Totes is what brought them to closely monitor the trial of a man charged with murdering his family. Whether they are a member of the family, an old friend, an old foe, a new acquaintance, or someone else. They are in Connecticut, Florida, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Colorado, and for about a week in April, they were tied to each other. They are a partial but potent reminder of the devastation wrought by a family gone wrong, children failed, a seemingly happy union broken. The court says Tony is to blame, and in every version of what happened at the Tote House in celebration in December of 2019, including Tony's to an extent, he is at fault. Tony maintains his innocence just as his father has for 40 years. He's appealing his conviction, just as his father did. We do not plan to direct guilt but to measure it, and to take proper stock of senseless loss in a world that can't seem to keep up. Even as we considered the wreckage of the last two and a half years, we could take solace in that it ended with a verdict. Not a hung jury, not a mistrial, not a question mark or a loose end or a theory, but a definitive verdict. The trial by no means answered all our questions. Nevertheless, it gave us an answer. After waiting for this trial for more than two years, We were shocked when it was set to wrap up after just four days. Tony was the only witness called by the defense, which rested at the end of day three. Defense? Defense, I rest, Judge. All right, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, both the state of Florida and defense have rested their presentation of evidence. On the morning of day four, Assistant State's Attorney Danielle Pinnell stood up to make her closing statement. The reason why we're here today is control. The defendant wanted control. She highlighted some of Tony's behavior during the period after his family had died. The defendant had conveniently parked his, parked the family van 
in front of a different building at the apartment on Longview Avenue. The defendant had started using cash and had continued to check the mail to make sure that nothing suspicious was going to lead somebody to the residence. She insinuated that he was acting suspiciously right up to when law enforcement entered his house. The defendant at the bottom of the stairs. I don't know when the last time I saw her. I think she went with you. Oh, maybe you should check the garage. The kids went to a sleepover. Megan's upstairs sleeping. The entire time the defendant is trying to be deceptive. She anticipates the defense keying on the contradictions between Tony's confession and the forensic evidence and tries to head those contradictions off. The defense attorney is going to get up here and that is going to be the key point. You can't believe what Anthony Tote told law enforcement in the interview that you saw because he said and was adamant that, that he stabbed the children before they died. And the medical examiner got up here and said there was no, the stabbed ones were post-mortem. And that's why you can't believe Anthony Toad's statement to law enforcement. Pinnell downplays these inconsistencies. How the defendant describes going into each child's room and killing each of his children is consistent with all of the evidence that was found on scene. She then goes step by step through Tony's interview with police, once again emphasizing Tony's outright admission of guilt her best weapon, and the one Tony and his defense have been trying to neutralize from day one. The defendant is very meticulous and describes more than one time the order in which each of his children was killed, the manner in, each, in which each one of his children was killed, and what he did afterwards. She also questions the veracity of what he said on the stand the previous day. When I asked him specifically, well, did you go to a neighbor? Did you try and get help? He says, well, we live in a snowbird area, right? It was December. It was December. This would be prime time for everybody to be at their houses. It's the morning, you know. It's unrealistic to believe that there was nobody there. She indicates that the tears he shed while talking about Megan and the kids were just a facade, noting how his demeanor shifted when he was speaking with her. The defendant did not shed one tear when I was talking to him. In fact, he was pretty angry with me. And she points out how Tony discovers the children in the same order that he described killing them, and questions whether a grief-stricken father would be so calm and methodical. He sees Zoe and goes to the bathroom, gets a washcloth, close her eyes. Meanwhile, he's been told his other two children are dead. He doesn't go from child to child to child. He takes the time, he goes to the bathroom, gets a washcloth, wets the washcloth. He tells you yesterday, well, I didn't have a chance to wet the washcloth between each one. Does that make sense to you? Without saying it explicitly, Pinnell is calling Tony a liar. But she is also asking the jury to selectively believe what he says. She's holding up Tony's statement to police as a clear-cut admission of guilt, while simultaneously calling attention to aspects of the confession that she seems to have trouble believing. 
At one point, she even clearly laughs at the idea of Tony and Megan talking to their children about dying together. So the defendant also tells you in his interview that they sat the children down, including his four-year-old daughter, and had a conversation with them about this plan, this suicide pact that him and Megan had together. And she echoes Detective Miller's question about why, if Tony and Megan had been planning this, did there need to be discussion about who would die next after the kids? The defendant does describe this plan, and Detective Miller specifically asks him, if you had everything so planned, if this was the plan and it had to happen, and this is what you're going to do for the afterlife, why didn't you know who was going to die first? Why, didn't, why was there a, a question as to who was going to die before Megan or, or the defendant? In the end, she circles back to this idea of control. The defendant tried to control everything yesterday, too. I would ask a question, the defendant would give an answer that he wanted to give, and then we would have, it's a yes or no question, and there was a lot of back and forth between both of us. The defendant was trying to ask me questions. He wants control. The prosecution hangs their case on Tony's two conflicting versions of events arguing that one version is more believable than the other. The conflict in the evidence comes from what the defendant told you yesterday. Because obviously he gave one complete statement to law enforcement and a completely different statement to you in court yesterday. The two cannot be resolved. So you're gonna have to decide which version you believe. I submit to you that what the defendant told law enforcement makes the most sense in this case. You've heard a lot, you've seen a lot, but you also haven't heard a lot, and you also haven't seen a lot. There are holes, there are gaps. Tony's attorney, Alicia Smith, took the same evidence and some of the same contradictions and argued that they add up to reasonable doubt. Now the things that you're left with here, the things that weren't done and what doesn't make sense, that gives rise to reasonable doubt. She pointed out that the state could not definitively say how anyone died. So if the medical examiner can't rule out and give you the true cause of death, that goes towards reasonable doubt. That it was impossible to rule out suicide in Megan's case. The knife went on Megan, she couldn't tell, like I mentioned, if it was self-inflicted or not. And that Megan's body showed no signs of a struggle. There was no trauma, and if there was trauma, that would be something she would look for because she indicated that trauma would be indicative of if there were signs of a struggle. There was none of that here. She said it was unclear how Breezy died. And Dr. Stern couldn't tell you how Breezy died. He couldn't indicate a strangulation. He couldn't indicate a suffocation. And while there was a wound, he can't say that that wound was a stab wound. And she said that the role of Benadryl in the deaths was unclear. Now, he indicated that he can't say that it was or that it wasn't the toxicological cause of death. Smith calls attention to Tony's demeanor on the day he was taken into custody. And he's shaking, mumbling, incoherent, kind of stumbling as he makes his way down the stairs to ultimately talk to them for several minutes. The implication seems to be that if Tony wasn't making sense on the 13th, it should call into question his statement on the 15th. The shakiness, the incoherentness, the way in which he was talking and mumbling, and not really making sense. 
Smith points out what the defense seems to perceive as shortcomings in the forensic evidence that Emily Seda testified about. She talks about seeing some wine bottles and things like that that were photographed but not ultimately processed or collected. And just remember that, Megan, that she had alcohol in her system. So there was no testing done on this bottle to indicate was there something inside of it, was there not, whose fingerprints are on the bottle. She implies that the state did not introduce certain evidence. The entire home was fully processed. She talked about a lot of things that she collected, but we only, we didn't see necessarily everything that she collected because she also mentioned collecting some journals and some notebooks and things like that as well. It's almost like she's suggesting that prosecutors are withholding evidence that could help Tony's case. She indicated that she also processed the Ottoman, the note that was on the Ottoman, the suicide note that the state was talking about earlier, and she was able to get prints off of that. Now, we didn't hear any testimony about any prints or whose prints were actually on this note or anything like that. Another issue that Smith raises is the lack of evidence resulting from Detective Miller's conversations with Tony. Miller asked a lot of questions about which devices Tony and Megan did their research on, but then the state doesn't corroborate anything. We hear him ask him all those questions, but we don't hear anything that Detective Miller does with this information. We don't see any phone searches. We don't see any Google searches. We don't see anything. The state talks about premeditation, how he planned this. But there's been no evidence or documentation to prove it. Smith then turns to the inconclusive DNA evidence. Because of the fact that he had basically full profiles, those fingerprints for each member of the family, he was able to indicate that each and every one of the members of the family touched a knife that was found in their house. But he can't say when the DNA got there, how the DNA got there, how long it's been there. While Pinnell tried to make the case that Tony's statement to police is more credible than his testimony in court, Smith argues the opposite. The state wants you to believe Mr. Tote's statement that he gave to law enforcement on the 15th after being released from the hospital. And they don't want you to believe what he told you about yesterday when he testified. Smith contends that there are elements in Tony's confession that are demonstrably false in light of the forensic evidence. Stab, suffocate, strangle, death. But that doesn't coincide with what the medical examiner said. The medical examiner said that each of those stab wounds occurred after death or there would have been blood in the cavity. So the state is essentially having you pick and choose when they want you to believe the defendant's statements and when they don't want you to believe the statements. They want you to believe that he did it, but don't believe the way he said he did it because it contradicts the actual physical evidence from the medical examiner, from the toxicologist, and from Dr. Goldberg as well. Instead, Smith is asking the jury to believe what Tony said in court and putting the blame on Megan. Basically, it was Megan. It was Megan's idea. And as the, as the man, as the father of the house, he's essentially taking responsibility, res taking responsibility for it. But taking responsibility for it doesn't mean he was the one that committed the act. It doesn't mean he was the one that did it. Just because he's taking responsibility, supposedly, after the fact, doesn't change the person who committed the act in the beginning. Just three and a half days into the trial, at about 12.20 p.m., Judge Karsten sent the jury to deliberate. You may now retire to consider your verdict. All right. Tony looked straight ahead, betraying no emotion, until the jurors left the courtroom. The court deputies are going to assist you uh, through this door. As Karsten dismissed the alternate jurors, Tony turned to his left. For about 60 seconds, we see him in profile, Lips pursed, brow furrowed. Thank you very much for your service in this trial. Earlier in the morning, before closing arguments, Tony looked at ease, smiling as he talked to his lawyers. Now he looked tense, 
knowing that his fate was in the hands of 12 jurors. Five hours passed, and as we were wondering if the deliberations would last for days, Karsten returned to the courtroom with a note from the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have received the following correspondence. The correspondence indicates we are deadlocked at this point. If I have read that correspondence incorrectly, if you will please raise your hand. Seeing no hands raised, I'm going to inquire who is our foreperson. Madam foreperson, uh, has the jury reached a unanimous verdict on any of the counts? And I'm not asking what the decision would be. Has the jury reached a unanimous verdict on any of the counts presented to the jury? Tony was facing four counts of first-degree murder and one count of animal cruelty. Based on the four-person statement, the jury had unanimously decided at least one of the counts, but felt they couldn't decide at least one other. All right. I'm going to ask that uh, the jury return to the jury deliberation room uh, and they complete uh, the jury form for any particular count in which the jury has reached a unanimous verdict. It wasn't clear what was happening. Would one or more of the counts not be decided? Were we headed for a mistrial? We spent the next hour trying to understand what to make of these developments, and then, around 6.45 p.m., we all had left the office for the day, but we dropped everything and watched the live feed from wherever we were. All rise to the jury. Tony sits still, looking straight ahead, avoiding eye contact with the jurors as the court deputy passes the verdict forms to Karsten. Madam foreperson, has the jury reached a unanimous verdict? Yes, sir. If you'll please give those forms a verdict to the court deputy. Tony and his three attorneys stand, facing away from the camera, as the court clerk reads the verdicts. Verdict as to count one. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder as charged in the indictment. Tony rocks forward and his shoulders slump. Verdict as to count two. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder as He starts to shake his head. Verdict as to count three. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of At first, almost imperceptibly. Verdict as to count four. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder But as each as count is read, the motion becomes more pronounced. Verdict as to count five. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of cruelty to animals. As the jurors are individually polled, Juror number 78, are these your verdicts? Yes. Tony sits with his hands pressed together as if in a prayer pose. Yes, Juror number 74, are these your verdicts? Yes. The head shaking is constant, growing more pronounced as Karsten dismisses the jury and moves immediately into the sentencing phase. A jury has unanimously determined, after being selected from our community, with your participation, that you are guilty murdering your wife, Megan Tote, murdering your daughter, Zoe Tote, murdering your son, Alexander Tote, murdering your son, Tyler Tote, and murdering the family dog. State, you anticipate uh, a sentencing hearing uh, wherein the family uh, will be allowed to give a statement. Before issuing a sentence, Karsten heard from Megan's aunt, my name is Cynthia Kopko. I am Megan's aunt and godmother and godmother to all her children, Alexander. 
She spoke for seven and a half minutes, sharing happy memories of Megan and the kids and describing the sadness of friends, neighbors, and family members. We loved Megan and the kids very, very much. And all I have is pictures and memories I can hold in my heart. And my parents miss them, and his parents miss them, and our families miss them very, very much. That's it, That's it Judge. Thank you, Ms. Thank you for listening to me. Karsten then turns to the defense table. Does the defense care to give any statements prior to sentencing? Do you want to address the court? Throughout this podcast, we've struggled to find the words to adequately describe how strange this story has been. There are only so many appropriate synonyms, bizarre, weird, outlandish, that I could use before feeling like I'm repeating myself. In that context, I have no adjective to describe the next seven minutes. I maintain my innocence. I provided for my wife, did everything I could for my wife. She was progressively sick over the years. Tony stands up and launches into a greatest hits of the story he has been telling over the last two years from jail and the previous four days in the courtroom. I love my wife. I love my children. I was not there the night my children died. He paints himself as a selfless husband and father. The weight gain, Ms. Kopko has said, was because I negated myself. Two to three hours of sleep a night because I would be treating my wife, doing for my wife, flying back and forth. He paints Megan as unstable and reckless. I begged her to go get help because she screamed at my son for because he didn't do the pot, clean the pot. He let it soak per my instructions. He rehashes details that we've heard repeatedly. This has been a progressive history since the miscarriage. Her anger issues, her frustration issues. More than anything, he just keeps talking. I told her that she has to the end of the month to see a doctor because she went to the alternative and spiritual and all this other route. Or I would get her aunt and my sister involved. He is a man facing multiple life sentences and it's as if he thinks that if he doesn't stop talking, he'll find some detail that will get the judge to reconsider. She was worried about me not loving her anymore. And I told her, no, the footprints, remember the footprints poem. Sometimes you don't think I'm there, but I'm the one carrying you. At one point, his lawyer, Robert Wesley, tries to interrupt, but Tony is undeterred. I couldn't sleep. I went downstairs. Okay. I... Judge Carson doesn't have the authority to overturn the judge. No, I understand, but I, I need to let him know that everything was okay when she woke up the next morning. Carson makes no attempt to stop Tony, listening quietly while maintaining constant eye contact. This altar they speak of was a homeschooling project from the week prior. That's all that was. There was no religious seance or anything whatsoever. It was nothing but a homeschooling project that made my wife happy because we were talking about Egyptian pharaoh and pyramids. That's all we were talking about and what they bring in the afterlife. Wesley tries again to get Tony to wrap it up, and at this point it's getting particularly uncomfortable to watch. This is, so, this is not helping you in, the, in the, from this progress on, so I encourage you to... I'm sorry. I love my wife. I love my kids. They were first and foremost in my life. Finally... Tony sits down. I did not do this. Thank you for listening to me, sir. 
He holds his head in his hands as if he realizes the futility of the situation. A jury has unanimously determined after listening to the evidence presented that you, Anthony John Tote, are a destroyer of worlds. After his defense finally rested, Karsten addressed Tony, eventually sentencing him to four consecutive life sentences, plus a year for the animal cruelty charge. You will be transferred to the Department of Corrections to serve your sentence. Anything further, State? Anything further defense at this time? No, Your Honor. That will conclude the trial and sentencing process. State of Florida versus Anthony John Tote has concluded. The easy thing to do would be to end this podcast right here. After all, we have a verdict. Tony is guilty full stop. But the verdict and the truth are not necessarily the same thing. The members of the jury were asked to decide whether the state proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a much narrower scope than if they were asked to decide what really happened at 202 Reserve Place in December of 2019. The only person alive right now who knows what happened there is Tony, and we know that at least some of the time, Tony is lying. He has told two different stories, and if he is guilty, then most, if not all, of what he said on the stand is not true. We wanted to return to the suicide note Pinnell mentioned briefly in her cross-examination of Tony. So many times while reporting on this story, we've been left to speculate as crucial details eluded us. We didn't want the suicide note, which Tony told the court Megan wrote, and he later retyped in an effort to honor his family's wishes, to be another one of those details. So we filed a public records request with the Osceola County State's Attorney's Office. Since a picture of the note was entered into evidence, we thought the content of the note was publicly available information. And it was. The records request yielded forensic technician Emily Seda's transcription as well as a picture of the typed note. We're faced with a long paragraph, some of which contains new information. It reads, We as a family decided this course of action of salvation for several reasons. The note says the family is seeing the end of the world prophecy coming true and chooses not to have our family suffer and be subjected to foreseen tortures, cataclysmic demise, and continued agony. The note seems to reference Tony's frenzied back and forth lifestyle between Connecticut and Florida, saying the family will no longer be separated and Tony will be with us always and forever now. The note says Megan will no longer be in pain from her liver and Lyme disease complications. The note says that the family made the decision together and cites Megan's father's suicide as well as Tony and Megan's two miscarriages as reasons for the overall depression our whole family suffers on a daily basis. Megan's father, Al Gula, killed himself in Montville, Connecticut. Tony and Megan had a recent miscarriage as well as one eight years before late 2019. The note seems to verify what Tony told detectives in his confession, that he and Megan were consulting the kids about this decision to die together. It uses the same exact language as Tony in that police interview, saying, the focus of everlasting salvation and being together forever without pain and suffering is our ultimate goal and want. In the middle of the note, 
It says the family lives in daily constant fear of Tony's father, Robert. It then says the family is proud of what it has contributed to the world and the love they share with each other. Our one final wish is that we are kept together, the note reads. The letter requests that the families, including Breezy's, ashes be distributed in either the Ocean or Harkness Memorial State Park in Waterford, Connecticut, so that we may be with Dad in eternal rest, referencing Al Gula. The note concludes by urging people close to the totes to be in peace that we are no longer suffering. It apologizes for the anguish and sorrow their actions should cause, but it was a decision we made as a family. Now we will be together forever without pain and suffering, and we will watch over and protect all of you. We love you all. During his cross-examination, Tony told Pinnell that the note said, Tony, I love you forever. Please forgive me. We, of course, did not see that in the versions of the note we received, meaning Tony was either lying or decided to omit that part when he retyped the letter. Reading this note was as emotional as it was confusing. If it was indeed Megan who penned the letter, what we're looking at is a genuine suicide note and, in the case of the kids and Breezy, an admission of murder. The confusion comes in when you think about how Tony said he retyped the letter out of respect for his family's wishes. It's of course possible that there is no letter at all, and Tony wrote it posing as Megan. We have him telling police that he was sending texts from his family members' phones after they died. We can't put authoring this letter himself past him. It's also possible, maybe improbable, but possible, that Megan wrote the note herself and Tony, the dutiful husband, made sure she got her message across. Tony has said he attempted to kill himself multiple times after Megan and the kids died. The question is, is it a note for their predetermined agreement or did Tony concoct it to cover the murders? The problem with this note is the problem of this case. You run around in circles trying to figure out, did Tony write it alone? Did he and Megan do it together? Was it all Megan? Regardless of those questions and their answers, the letter implicates Tony. It never says, this is just Megan. It always refers to the family and presents a united front among the children, the parents, and Breezy. If Tony didn't have any hand in this, if he was sleeping when it happened, why does the letter indicate otherwise? Whatever your personal interpretation of the note, it's clear that it doesn't help Tony's case. In every iteration, the letter is all about we, and the one part Tony describes on the stand that would help his case is not in it. The suicide note isn't the only clear-cut sign of dishonesty from Tony. Some elements of his testimony seem to be demonstrably false. Detective Miller had evidence that Tony's phone was found in Sarasota after the murders, but he says on the stand that this didn't happen. Some elements just seem too convenient. He fell asleep in the van, forgot to bring his phone, and the battery died on his iPod. Megan hid the phone so he couldn't get help. He was aware of Megan's alternative religious beliefs, but not her plans for a family suicide, one that included him and just happened to coincide with a night he planned to spend elsewhere. The altar at the foot of the bed was an innocuous homeschool project about the Egyptian afterlife that had nothing to do with his wife's plan to reunite the family in the great beyond. If this is all true, then Tony is the unluckiest person alive, 
unlucky to an extent that would be almost comical if not for the loss of life. There are some consistencies between Tony's two versions of events. Pinnell pointed out that the order in which Tony described finding the children was the same order in which he described killing them. In both versions, Megan's health is failing, her religious beliefs are evolving, and her behavior is becoming more erratic. It's possible that Tony started lying the minute he encountered law enforcement, and that he never stopped. The lie just kept evolving and growing as he had more time to compose his story. If he's lying on the stand, it's easy to understand his motivation. Facing life in prison with no evidence to exonerate him, of course he would say he didn't participate in killing his family. It's harder to understand what his motivation would be to lie to detectives and say that he stabbed and suffocated his children when he really didn't. The only explanation he ever offers is that he took responsibility in order to protect Megan. But his confession still casts her as an equal partner in the planning and execution of the murders, even if she wasn't holding the knife. We can also look to Tony's phone conversations with his sister to try and establish the truth. This is information that we have that the jury never got to hear. On the stand and at the sheriff's department, Tony was talking to people who would have had a hand in deciding his fate. But on the phone with Chrissy, it's possible he would have been more vulnerable and therefore more honest. The night everything happened, okay, I'm going to tell you this. Um, I went over because Zoe wanted her Mickey silver uh, necklace in the February 27th 2020 call he tells Chrissy that he went to the condo after dinner to look for Zoe's necklace if he was being truthful in the police interview it sounds like this necklace was meant to be included on the altar of favorite things at the foot of the master bed but anyways I went over to the condo to get that that was the one last thing we needed notice he said it was the last thing we needed in the letter he wrote from jail, he tells his father that Megan asked him to get the necklace. But in this call, he uses the first-person plural. It was not just important to Zoe or to Megan, but to him also. He then offers more details to Chrissy that contradict what he said on the stand and in the letter. Um, I spent about two hours over there trying to find the key. We couldn't find the key. So at about 7, 30, 8 o'clock, I walked back to the garage and got the crowbar, went back to the condo and opened it up, okay? Um, I left it open because I figured you were out the new to come down later and take care of it. In this version, he does go into the condo and leaves some damage knowing that his extended family will be coming later and could take care of it. Reading between the lines here, this sounds like someone planning a ritual suicide knowing that family members would have to come to tend to their affairs. This would lead us to conclude that Tony is mostly telling the truth to detectives, which would mean that he and Megan were both involved in the killing. I have to stop right here and say that this is an uncomfortable conclusion and really an unfair one because Megan was never on trial for this crime. She's not here to speak for herself, and nobody who knew her in the time leading up to the deaths has publicly spoken up for her. But, given what we know, it's the conclusion that is easiest to arrive at. Much of the information we have admittedly comes from the mouth of the person who was found alive in the house with all of the dead bodies, and who we know to be lying at least some of the time. The other problem with this line of thinking is that if we accept that he's telling the truth in this phone call, 
We also hear him say that he fell asleep at the condo. Couldn't find it in the jewelry box. I ended up falling asleep. And um, let's just leave it at that, okay? Um, I fell asleep for... I was supposed to wake up at 11, 11.30. Didn't wake up till the next morning. So if you can find that, just keep it safe. 11.30 was the time he told police that he and Megan set an alarm to wake up and kill the children. In this story, he sounds remorseful that he couldn't get back to the condo by 11.30 because he fell asleep, which would mean he was telling the truth on the stand. This gets us into a circular vortex of logic where if A is false, then B and C must be true, but if C is true, then A must be true, and so on and so forth. It's like the Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail. The easiest conclusion to draw, the one that everybody commenting on social media and many people commenting on our podcast want to arrive at, is that Tony did this all by himself. That some combination of the pressure of the federal investigation into his fraudulent business practices and psychological damage suffered from the attempted murder of his mother caused him to snap or gave him some sort of motivation to want to kill his family. Honestly, It might be more satisfying for us to reach that conclusion, we just don't have any evidence that explicitly supports it. This all leaves us in an unsatisfying place, 13 and a half episodes into a podcast, and we find that we don't know a whole lot more now than we did in the beginning. We have more information than ever before, but very little to anchor it. The one thing that we can do as journalists is speak to the people who were most affected by this story. This podcast was never just about telling the story of the murders. It was also about trying to understand and process the far-reaching human impact of this tragedy. So we reached out one more time to several people who we spoke to throughout the reporting process. Hello? Christina Garrity said she expects to be in celebration a long while. Probably we're lifers until we retire and our kids are, I don't know, probably forever. (laughs) The mother of now 12-year-old Liam, Christina has told us how the tote murders have affected her son's, her own, and her husband's lives. The Garrities were essentially neighbors with the totes, and Liam played with Alec and Tyler. Once Tony's guilty verdict was in, Christina took some time to come to terms with it herself before informing her son. When I spoke to him... I waited a little bit and had a good cry, breathed a sigh of relief that justice was served, and tucked him into bed later on that night, and he said, Mommy, what happened? And I said, well, I said, he's never, ever going to see the light of day with a sense of freedom again. And my, my son cried. And he said, Mommy, you're sure we're safe now? And I said, yes, we're safe. She also spoke to her son learning about brutality and its consequences earlier than she would have liked. I feel as though this whole situation stole a bit of his innocence. And he's still um, a delightful young boy, just turned 12. But he definitely didn't need to go through this kind of trauma at the hands of some incredible, incredible stress and um, at the hands of someone who we thought, you know, was a was a normal family man and 
it was unnecessary for him to have to go through this, unfortunately. Christina described the mood of celebration after the verdict as celebratory. We actually, as neighbors, all sort of texted and we met outside of our houses after work and we all just looked at each other and went, thank goodness, thank goodness this happened. Thank goodness he was found guilty. We were all relieved, every single one of us. And there was actually a lady that started driving through our town screaming some expletives, but that justice was served and that our neighbor will never be free. She was screaming from her car driving through town. It was kind of unreal. Christina took us through the tension of when the jury was deadlocked as she and her colleagues worried that the jury believed Tony's story that Megan was responsible for killing the children, herself and the family dog. I think the fear was that while he was blaming her, um, that they would be together in the, na- in the afterlife and that she did this and he had nothing to do with it. Um, there was anger and there was fear from all of us that someone would believe him and actually believe that she was a part of this. Christina and her family are determined not to forget the victims of the Tote family tragedy. She's using the basketball hoop that the three boys used to play on as a memorial, as well as installing a bench for Megan, Zoe, and Breezy. I and putting um, the plaque on the basketball hoop that says um, dedicated to Alec and Tyler and just the quote will be always remember to play and then um, we're doing a little bench outside of our fence dedicated to Megan, Breezy, and Zoe. Though she's a self-proclaimed celebration lifer, Christina recognizes the damage caused by what happened with the totes. There was at least a little bit of PTSD still lingering in the fall Um, Some neighbors that had just moved in um, right across the street, just just up the street from where the totes lived and across Longview from us diagonally, they put police tape out for Halloween with a, um, a chalk outline on the sidewalk. And everyone was like, oh, no, they don't know. They don't know. Our kids can't walk down the street. And so one of the neighbors reported them. And they, so we went over and apologized and said, listen, we just need to explain to you what happened here and how upsetting this would be to children. They they apologized profusely. They're the nicest people in the world, and they had no idea. While new people temporarily moved into the Totes' home, the families living near them at the time of the murders almost all up and left. As beautiful as Celebration is, as Disney-esque as it feels on a, a beautiful day like today with justice being served, It's a place where, you know, human error and strife and pain also live. You can't get away from it no matter where you are. And I think that we all just need to realize that we're lucky and we need to stay as solid as a community and as moral as we can and look out for each other. I think the legacy is that we're we're also a real town with real problems. Scott Ward, who we had considered a true celebration local, a man who recognized the town's faults while adoring it, moved to Texas. But he was still in town when Tony was determined to be guilty. When we talked before, it was in shock and sorrow and horror. Uh, So a lot of people angry now, angry. Scott said he's one of many people moving to and from celebration right now. 
you know, there's been so many people that have moved out, so many people that have moved in, that it's really kind of it's starting to change its dynamic of this town. This transient quality has led to, on a larger level, a loss of a sense of community, and with regards to the Tote family case, a loss of collective memory. Was I don't think the town will will really ever get over it, but it's it's interesting how many people that have, have come into town have no idea about it. None. Still, Scott said that when the verdict came in, it was the talk of the town. The verdict and all this kind of stuff coming down just before Easter weekend, right? When all the kids are out uh, doing stuff, you know, in the in the parks and Easter egg hunts and all this kind of stuff. It was just really, I didn't think that people would talk about it as much as they did. The biggest thing we heard from Celebration residents was how much it pissed them off that Tony blamed Megan for the murders. When, when he tried to blame her and and all of that, that was the start. That was the match that lit the fire. Tony's behavior on the stand was also suspect, Scott said. A lot of people would talk about, you know, his performance. I think I heard that a lot, quite frankly, right? Of uh, his performance on, on the stand and, and uh, how he carried himself and the way that he's just so um, self-absorbed. According to Scott, a lot of the townspeople wanted the death penalty and were surprised to learn after the verdict of Tony's life sentences. At least four or five people that I talked to were surprised that it wasn't a death penalty case. They were, they were going forward under the assumption that, oh yeah, this has got to be a death penalty case. Another thing that angered Celebration residents was the tabloid media's decision to dub Tony Disney Dad. The fact that the press is calling oh, him yeah. Disney Dad has really put a thorn in the paw of some people down here, for sure. Really? Really? Wow, mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. Scott said that he and the rest of the town were glad for the verdict, but that it didn't deliver the closure they'd hoped for. Everybody was kind of like, that's it? <laughs> right? Like, nobody thought he was going to get off. But everybody, at the end of the trial, it was just kind of like, that's it? He blames the tote murders, COVID, and other factors on celebration, losing some of the magic that drew him to it in the first place. We had hopes and dreams, like a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of coming here, and I think that COVID really, really changed that. And, you know, I... I'm sure this town will get back to what it was designed for, but there's there's been a lot of things that have happened. It's been a lot, man. It's been a lot. People are frustrated, Scott said, by the nature of the crimes Tony was convicted of, meaning that inherently they can never be comfortably explained away. I think people are looking to make sense of it, and, and we're still not able to make that full sense of what happened. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's such a such a huge tragedy and so awful. And, and I mean, I, t I talked to a guy at the park yesterday. He says, "Can you ever are you ever really going to understand it? Even if you got all those answers?" And everybody just kind of stood there and said, "Well, no, you can't even get your head around it." So even if you knew every nook and cranny, it will never make sense. We've spoken to Tony's former employee, Randy Gallagher, on multiple occasions. Though she doesn't work at family physical therapy any longer, she still lives in Colchester, and she works at a new physical therapy practice. It's been eye-opening because I've been seeing how bad things were with, with him and how 
good things are here. Her new place of business has a better work environment, Randy said. Yeah, it's a lot more professional and everything's kept track of. And yeah, it's everything's just by the book here. And obviously it wasn't by the book there. Randy got the impression that Colchester was supportive of the verdict. It seems like 99.9% of everyone is happy with the decision. <laughs> she also described in part why she supported the verdict, Tony's demeanor, especially in his interaction with the prosecutor. He would ask her a question, and I was so glad she was like coming back with, I asked the questions, not you. <laughs> he was so, I could tell he was like so mad that he couldn't like control the situation. Randy said she hoped the people of Colchester can come to terms with what happened to the Tote family. I hope they stop talking about it because, it, it, you know, it's over and done with and he's, um, you know, we shouldn't talk about him because he's guilty and he doesn't need to, to keep being in the news. He needs to, we just need to forget about it um, because he's the type of person that likes to, you know, be the star, whatever you call it. He's, he's just, mm. he tries all that kind of stuff, but he acts like he doesn't, but he does. <laughs> we spoke with Tony's father, Robert Tote, soon after the trial. Hello. He sounded despondent on the phone and less boisterous than usual. When was the last time we talked? Was it like a year ago? A year ago. At the time, he seemed to be keeping in touch with Tony closely and closer than other family members. Oh, every day. Every day I talk to him. You know, we, um, I didn't speak to him yesterday. It was the first time I didn't. Um, basically, he's waiting to find out where he's going to be transferred to. Robert speaks from the perspective of someone who spent five years in prison. He said he was worried Tony wouldn't be cut out for it. He grew up a little bit differently than I grew up. And um, in there, you you just have to know how to handle yourself. I mean, you don't have a choice. Robert speaks candidly about his relationship with his son and his daughter, Chrissy Caplet. It's it's kind of strange the relationship Tony and I have now. Um, for the longest time, he called me Bob, you know, which is fine by me. It was more of a a friendship role in the beginning, just trying to feel each other out and find out what's going on. She was nothing to do with me, and that's her choice. It's her loss. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know how else to put that. I, I, yeah. I'd love to have a relationship with my daughter. Um, she has a, a, I mean, let's face it, she never knew who I was. Um, when I went away, she was two years old. And, uh, I mean, she didn't, she had no idea who I was. And, I don't know, I guess, uh, you you look at the reality of the situation. I gave up the role as dad a long time ago. And that was not by choice, but. I gave it up. I asked Robert if he saw any similarities between his trial and his son's. I I can remember sitting where he was sitting. Um, 
and listening to people talk about this person, and it's like, you know, they're talking about me? No, that's not me. You know what I mean? And then you almost see that on his face. It's like you're, you're stepping out of your world and stepping into something else. Um, I mean, when they announced the verdict, you could just, you could see his heart drop. I mean, you know, it was, he swears up and down that he had nothing to do with this. Um, And I have to believe my son. It's my son. We know Robert has held grudges against people or media outlets who say something he doesn't like about him or his son. He gave us several specific examples in episode 5 of the podcast. But during the trial, Robert was faced with an onslaught of negative comments about him and his son. When you, you were watching the trial on the side, it had all these different people who were chatting back and forth. And you almost look at it and say, you know, who the hell are you to sit there and pass judgment on somebody? And you don't even know, you know. You know, there's one guy saying, oh, he deserves a death penalty. Oh, okay, sure, right. Robert confirmed that Tony would be appealing before he actually did appeal. He he is definitely appealing. The ruling he, I mean, we spoke about it on the phone on, on what he wants to do. He described his son's attitude toward his defense team and characterized the death of Tony's former lead defense attorney, Peter Schmur, as an even greater blow to Tony's defense than we'd imagined. He, he was the lead attorney. I mean, you know, Robert is uh, the head attorney, but he was going to do all the questioning and, and everything else. So they lost a lot during that point in time because he did all the questioning from what I understand at all the depositions and everything like that. Our conversation ends with Robert wondering how his parents felt when he was convicted all those decades ago. It's a parent's nightmare. I mean, I know how my father felt and my mother felt, um, and I felt that I often just sit there and say, oh my God, how did you get through this? You know what I mean? He again says he's worried Tony won't be tough enough for jail. You know, I was a little tougher, I was a little different. At least I hope I was. The worry of how Tony would be treated in jail sounded like it was weighing Robert down. They just tore my son out of my heart. Uh, so there's a big piece missing right now, you know. You don't get repaired, but it's never going to be the same, you know. Judge Alan Rubenstein, the pithy jurist we interviewed for an earlier episode of the podcast, who, as a young assistant district attorney in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, convicted Tony's father Robert Tote for attempted murder, said he saw just as many distinctions between the sons and the father's cases as parallels. The father, Robert Tote, was cold and calculating and conniving. Uh, He was not mentally deranged. He planned this. He plotted it. He had the arrogance to believe that he would get away with it, that he would never make the net. And but for the path of the bullet he'd be facing, in Bucks County 40 years ago, a potential death sentence. But the father is much different than the son. Uh, The father uh, 
is without soul. Rubenstein, now a senior judge in Bucks County, wasn't critical of Tony's decision to testify. In fact, he thought it his only option. This wasn't a great who done it. The evidence was abundant, overwhelming, that he was guilty of these murders. Um, it's always the decision of the defendant whether or not he or she wishes to testify. And it's also very risky. But it might have been a good way to at least present to the jury that this man was not your classic monster. Not that his acts weren't monstrous, but I saw some of his testimony, and he appeared to be responsive, articulate, and maybe the jury looked at him and said, uh, there's something wrong here, but we're going to spare his life. So it might have been a good tactic. The judge only saw the defense question Tony and didn't see his cross-examination. He probably had absolutely nothing to lose. There was no way any jury would acquit Anthony to. Rubenstein characterizes Tony's testimony as something of a Hail Mary. But he says Roberts was a gift to the prosecution. He was my best witness. Um, he came <laughs> off as arrogant and cold calculating, and the longer he spoke, the more the jury disliked him, and the greater the amount of testimony, the more the jury understood that he did this and had absolutely no remorse. The judge suspects that what Tony went through as a child impacted him today. For that reason, he allows more leeway for the younger tote, though he says there's no excuse for what he was convicted of doing. It's a tragic case concerned. Uh, nothing can justify what Anthony Tote did. But I think back 40 years ago to what he experienced as a toddler and thereafter, his mother almost dying, his mother losing an eye, his father going to prison for a lengthy period of time. The fact that he understood this as he got older. So it's not surprising to me in any way that he became for lack of a better term, unhinged. The judge commented on the state's decision not to seek the death penalty after initially doing so. The fact that the state didn't seek the death penalty may tell you a lot about how they felt this case unfolded. Uh, perhaps, even though they're advocates, they recognized that while the crime was monstrous, that it was a multiple homicide, four separate victims, they probably understood that there's something really wrong with Anthony Thurk. As always, Rubenstein returned to Tony's childhood trauma. You know, 40 years before, you know, the seed was planted, the die was cast. I mean, the fact that he was able at least to get to the age of 40-something without going, you know, wholly off the deep end, able to go to school, to get an advanced degree, to get married, to raise a family, is surprising. Uh, the trauma that he experienced as a young child uh, might have been something that uh, might have destroyed him. It would also make sense here to follow up with Tony. In the one interview with him that you got to hear, he said that when the trial is over, we would be the first people he spoke to and he would tell us everything. He was assuming he would be doing that as an exonerated, free man. But now he is in prison indefinitely, and he's no longer reaching out to us. After that phone call that you heard in episode 10, he did call us fairly regularly, 
but never agreed to be recorded on the record. We can say that he didn't really tell us anything of substance and was more calling to try to complain about or to steer our coverage of his story. So we don't have another interview with Tony to share. We do have something else, though. When we started working on this podcast, our colleague, sports writer Mike DeMauro, recognized the name Tony Tote. Mike dug through his files and found a typewritten letter. I am the captain of Montville High School's boys' soccer program, and am writing in severe dissatisfaction of the article published by Mr. Mike DeMauro. Here is our producer, Carlos Virhan, reading excerpts of this letter to the day from Tony in the 1990s. First, Montville is not an inferior school in the ECC and has the same right to be included in the conference as any other school presently in the ECC. MHS has never backed down from competitors and does not weigh its schedule for a winning season, as insinuated by Mr. DeMauro. It's a first-hand clue into Tony's personality as a teenager. Since Mr. DeMauro has a problem with the athletic program at Montville, he should take this problem up with the athletic director, or even the coaches of these respective sports, or preferably with the student-athletes who participate in these sports. Reading it now more than a year after DeMauro gave it to me, I find myself comparing it to Tony's attempts to control the narrative now that he is an adult. Just as he did when he was captain of the high school soccer team, Tony is reaching out to day reporters from jail to try and steer their reporting in a certain direction. As you will find out, Mr. DeMauro, MHS is not a school of inferior students, as some would refer to as wimps, but actually a school of young adults with an overflowing amount of spirit and enthusiasm that they are invincible against any competitor. The letter also reminds me of him on the stand, and of his father. I have a proposition for Mr. DeMauro. Get a clue of what really is going on at MHS and its reasons behind it. If anyone says anything those two don't like, it seems they become haughty and lose composure. And Mr. DeMauro, Montville does not need to take lessons from Stonington, as you implied in the editorial written on Tuesday, November 17. But rather, you need to take lessons on good journalism. Respectfully yours, Tony Tote. It didn't feel right to let Tony have the last word in this podcast, so we called Kirsten Bethman. Hello? She has acted as the de facto voice in defense of Megan, who speaks for the people who once knew her and could never believe her to be implicated in the murders of her children. All of us childhood friends were in a in a group together uh, chatting and we were all really concerned that there wasn't enough to defend Megan in that case. Kirsten told us her reaction to the verdict and spoke to the prevailing relief it brought. Once they read the verdict, I was incredibly grateful and relieved and there was a sense of um, it's not even justice. It was just this uh, enormous exhale that that in some way Megan and the kids were allowed to remain in peace uh, after everything that has been going on since 2019. Kirsten said she felt Tony lost the trial with his testimony. In a way, I'm super grateful that he made the decision to take the stand because I think him taking the stand absolutely secured uh, his spot in jail for the rest of his life. But the verdict alone wasn't enough for Kirsten and a group of old neighborhood friends. They wanted Megan's name cleared. He put all the blame on her. And I 
the, I think the thing I'm so mad at with him, aside from the, the atrocious things that I believe that he absolutely did, is that he made all of us question Megan's character. Based on what we saw in the trial, the prosecution didn't much care whether Megan was implicated in killing herself and her children as long as they got their conviction of Tony. We were messaging, like, is there any way that she really could have been involved? And it was actually my mom that kept reminding me, this is not Megan. This was not Megan from childhood. This is not the Megan that you knew as an adult. She wouldn't have done this. Kirsten is still angry that Tony blamed Megan in his accounts of what happened to his family. Still angry at his claims that he wasn't there and that Megan was the mastermind of this misguided and sinister plot. And we all had to keep reminding ourselves because he, like, for a moment, put doubt in us. And that, I think, is what I'm so infuriated with. Despite the circumstances, Kirsten said Megan's death ended up rekindling now lifelong friendships. Our neighborhood crew, we all have been in a text thread since she had gone missing, actually. Well, right, out, right after they had found her, I guess. So there are five of us. Uh, all in the same neighborhood that, you know, we grew up together for, you know, our entire childhood. Um, and it, it's the, the group of us have remained uh, in touch. Kirsten shared a personal story with me about lost potential. That was her greatest sadness about what happened with Megan and the kids. I've said this about my brother. My brother passed in an accident uh, almost 20 years ago. And the only thing, like for me, the saddest part was that he went too soon. And he, I believed, had so much more life ahead of him. That's how I feel about Megan is I'm most sad that she didn't have, you know, decades long with her children getting to watch them go to prom or graduate from university or be there to do her daughter's hair when she was getting married. Um, those are the things that I'm most sad about at the end of the day is all of their lives were taken much too soon and there was so much more for her and her children to live and share with the community and the world and all the people that loved them. And that is absolutely the most de devastating part of all of this for me. When we first started reporting on the tote case, I worried it would be too much for us to unpack. Taylor pushed for a podcast. She said writing for print was not enough, that it didn't capture the complexities of the case. And she was right. We set out to determine what happened at that celebration house in December of 2019, and to an extent, we succeeded. I mean, we have a general idea, Better yet, we have multiple general ideas, and we can be satisfied with the essence of them. And we can act unsurprised at any possibility. We can confidently say we know what can be known about this case. We can nod knowingly if we learn without a single doubt that Tony, in an effort to keep his family in his stead and concerned about his impending prison time due to healthcare fraud, murdered them. In effect, keeping them to himself. We can do the same if we came to know as a matter of fact that Tony and Megan carried out this idiotic and disastrous plan in cahoots with each other. I think, at the very least, 
Tony had something to do with what happened to Megan, Alec, Tyler, Zoe, and Breezy. But what does this knowledge and what do these assurances accomplish? I returned to Colchester to ponder that question. It's strikingly quieter on the actual green than when we were here two and a half years ago. It's the closest touchstone we have of the totes. Montville was too long ago. This family had roots in Colchester. The kids grew up there. Their father was known as a local business owner and by many accounts, an upstanding member of the community. So I stood on the gazebo where friends and family members and community leaders and others had stood and publicly mourned the deaths of the Tote family at a vigil two and a half years ago. Back at that time, as I mingled with the crowd and met sources we'd talked to for years after the fact, I had very little concept of what we were getting into, but I still felt the great sadness of those gathered. Now I recognize real-life horrors I wouldn't otherwise contemplate, and I realize the reason we care so much about the Tote family is because we know them. We've seen them before, in our grocery stores, on our soccer fields, at our music recitals, in our yearbooks, at our amusement parks. They are our neighbors, colleagues, acquaintances, classmates, childhood friends. They are the exception that proves the rule of our mostly normal daily lives. We mourn the innocent who died, and eventually we move on. I'm not sure what I expected to see at the Colchester Town Green, but there was nothing. No sign of the totes, and the only signs of life the cars passing and people walking by as I wandered around. I went to Tony's old physical therapy office, thinking maybe I'd see something there. But the only sign was of nothing at all. One that said there was space available. There's a bunch of cars in the driveway, and then if you look inside, it's just completely empty. What's left to remind us of the totes are mostly intangible things. Passing headlines, rumors, murmurings of remember when. While Scott Ward and so many others have been right, this doesn't make sense. There is no closure, no reconciliation. We are strangely comforted by the many people who were affected by the Tote family tragedy. We know how consequential Alec, Tyler, Zoe, Breezy, and Megan were in their lifetimes. We saw how their friends and family and communities responded to their deaths. Even as the memory of their deaths fade, we could be sure that their lives had a tangible effect. Soon after the trial ended, I learned Tony would appeal his conviction. It reminded me, he's still alive. He has the power to continue this story, or discontinue it, but his dead family members don't. Barring any new reporting, we choose not to continue this story. The court declaring Tony a destroyer of worlds, more than two years after his sisters set out to find him and his family, felt a gutting and fitting enough conclusion. You can see a picture of the suicide note on our website. You can find the link in the episode description. This episode is the series finale, but tune in next week for a bonus episode where I interview a juror on Tony's case. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Looking for the Tote Family on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to rate the show. Find us on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram. Looking for the Tote Family is hosted and reported by Sten Spinella, produced by Peter Huapi and Carlos Virhen, written by Sten Spinella and Peter Huapi, editing by Peter Huapi, and music by Carlos Virhen. Tim Cotter is our executive editor, and Izaskun Larnieta is our managing editor. This has been a production of The Day in New London, Connecticut.